Tomorrow is Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Dr. King was born in 1929, and if he were uh, alive today, he would be celebrating his 94th birthday. I'm always shocked to remember that he was only 39 years old when he was assassinated. That's five years younger than I am standing before you today. I'm also holding in my heart that next Sunday is the one-year anniversary of Thich Nhat Hanh, the beloved peace activist, the Buddhist teacher, the author of more than 100 books, truly remarkable. On this MLK weekend, I'd like to invite us to spend some time reflecting on the, the truly profound and transformative friendship between Dr. King and Thich Nhat Hanh. If this sermon leaves you curious to learn more, I recommend a book titled Brothers in the Beloved Community, The Friendship of Thich Nhat Hanh and Martin Luther King Jr. From our contemporary perspective here in 2023, a friendship between two world historic leaders for peace and justice, that may seem obvious and natural, but I promise you that almost 60 years ago when they first corresponded, it was highly unusual, to say the least, for a Vietnamese Buddhist monk and an American Baptist pastor to forge a friendship especially as their two countries were in the midst of an ongoing war. Uh, Their first contact was on June 1st, 1965, when Thich Nhat Hanh wrote an open letter to Dr. King. It was the second anniversary uh, or approaching when headlines around the world had shown a photograph of a Vietnamese Buddhist monk lighting himself on fire. How many people remember waking up and seeing that photo? All right, quite a few of you. The monk had self-immolated while sitting in an upright, calm, meditative posture in the lotus position. A number of other monks had self-immolated over the next year. The Western press almost universally described these acts as suicides and interpreted them as protests of the war. But the letters the monks had left behind clearly said that their intention was to call attention to the South Vietnamese regime's repression of Buddhism, and by doing so, by making what to them was the ultimate sacrifice of compassion, giving your very body to call attention to this important cause. Uh, due to the graphic content, I'm, I'm not going to show you the photo of the actual uh, self-immolation, but it is widely available if you want to Google it. And I need to underscore uh, that I would encourage you to consider it neither inappropriate nor voyeuristic um, to do so. Thich Nhat Hanh felt that that actual moment of self-immolation, which was captured in a photo, he thought it was so important that he made it the cover of his 1967 book titled Lotus in a sea of fire, which is, of course, partially a reference to napalm as well. President John F. Kennedy said of that photograph, no news picture in history has generated so much emotion around the world as that one. Now, you're seeing a later edition of that same book, which features a photo, photograph of Tikkwan Duck, who was the first monk to self-immolate that you saw just in that previous slide. Note that both he and Thich Nhat Hanh have that same name, Tik. Uh, that's a surname. Uh, it comes first instead of last in, in the Vietnamese culture. It's a title given to Vietnamese Buddhist monks when they ordain. It, it symbolizes that their new chosen family, and their new chosen family name is the, the Buddhist Sangha. Uh, 
The Vietnamese custom would be to call him by his uh, given name, not Han, which is what you'll hear me doing. So why was it that Thich Nhat Hanh reached out to King in June of 1965 about these acts of self-immolation when they had happened almost two years um, prior? As Dr. King shared with us in her recent sermon, King had generated his own headlines seen around the world just two months earlier in March of 1965 for leading the Selma to Montgomery marches. And watching Dr. King's campaign in Selma gave Nat Han the, the impression that if anyone in the West could actually understand what those Buddhist monks had been about and their actual intent, it actually might be King. Nat Han's letter is only a little over a thousand words. It's widely available online and also worth reading in full. I'll share just a few highlights with you. Nat Han wrote to, to Dr. King these words. The self-burning of the Vietnamese Buddhist monks in 1963, that is something difficult for the Western Christian conscience to understand. So if you're kind of feeling within yourself like, that's really strange, just, just be sitting with that. that is, it, it is not part of our culture. The press spoke then of suicide, but Nat Han said, in essence, it is not. It is not even a protest. To say something while experiencing this kind of pain is to say it with the utmost courage and frankness and determination and sincerity. The monks who burned themselves had lost neither courage nor hope, nor did they desire non-existence. After all, they believe in reincarnation. Uh, on the contrary, uh, they saw it as a very courageous and hopeful act, aspiring that this act might actually change something when, if, if they thought anything other than this would change the then they would have done it, but they, they just weren't seeing anything else making a difference. Uh, Nat Han said, I believe with all my heart that the monks who burned themselves did not aim at the deaths of the oppressors. That's not what they were trying to model. But only at a change in their policy. Their enemies are not man. Their enemies are intolerance, fanaticism, dictatorship, cupidity, which means greed, hatred, discrimination, which lie at the heart of humankind. I also believe, he said, with all my being, that the struggle for equality and freedom that you, Dr. King, are leading in Birmingham, Alabama, is not aimed at the whites, but only at their intolerance and their hatred and their discrimination. He concluded, in writing to you as a Buddhist, I profess my faith in communion and in the world's humanists whose thoughts and attitudes should be a guide for all humankind in finding those real enemies of humanity. Perhaps this letter gives you an early sense of why Thich Nhat Hanh was to become a world historic spiritual teacher. So let me say just a little about his background. How did he become not your average Buddhist monk in the same way that Dr. King became not your average Baptist preacher? Uh, Thich Nhat Hanh was born in 1926. Look, it's baby Thich Nhat Hanh. Uh, 
He was born in 1926 in Vietnam, and he went through all the traditional training and scholarly study to be ordained in the Vietnamese Zen Buddhist tradition. You'll sometimes hear that called the thin, T-H-I-E-N, Buddhist tradition. But let me let you in on an open secret. What the Vietnamese call thin, what the Japanese call Zen, what the Chinese call Chan, what the Sanskrit calls Dana, what the Pali calls Jhana, it's all the same thing, just translated into different. It just means meditation, actually, uh, in the same way that as you start to get into religious studies, you start to see these things. Like the word Allah is just the Arabic word for God. If you're you know, Christian or Jewish praying in Arabic, you say Allah. There's a lot more of these. Com- Sometimes there, there are differences where, that seem different that are actually quite common just under the surface. But here's the thing for our purposes. Not Han didn't do the usual thing and just stop with that quite intensive and rigorous monastic training. Uh, as a young man, all while remaining a Buddhist monk, he went to graduate school at Princeton University. Uh, he was a popular visiting faculty member and leader of graduate seminars at Columbia University in New York in 1962 and 1963. Later, they actually wanted him to come and be a tenured faculty member there, but he needed to be in solidarity with his people, so he didn't feel like he could say yes to that. So these dual influences of of both profound influences from the East as well as profound influences from the West is what helped form him into someone with the capacity to truly be a global uh, spiritual leader. Uh, Likewise, King was educated in the West, but also deeply formed in many ways from the East, especially on Gandhian uh, nonviolent activism, which is deeply grounded in Hinduism. So there's a lot to say about the resonances between the worldviews of King and Han, but allow me to highlight three points in particular. First, interdependence. Here in the U.S., we like to talk about independence, right? But it's all the difference in the world. You can still be independent, but freely choose community, freely choose interdependence. Uh, both King and Nat Han lived out of this, I can't emphasize this too uh, strongly enough, out of this, it wasn't just an idea, it was a felt sense of interdependence, a felt experience that this reality in which we find ourselves is not composed of separate, isolated things. Rather, everything, very much including all of us and all of reality, is deeply interconnected. If you look closely, everything is not a noun, it's a verb. If you look closely, everything, and this is part of what quantum physics is showing us really clearly, everything is process and relationship all the way down. We've talked about this perspective in a few different previous um, Sunday services, most recently uh, last month in a sermon titled How William James Can Save Your Life, Psychedelics, uh, Peak Spiritual Experiences and Consciousness Research. So that's in our sermon archive if you want to check that out. Our UU Seventh Principle calls this respect for the interdependent web of all existence of which we are all a part. Nat Han called this same concept interbeing, right? We don't, we're not just being, we're interbeing. We inter-are. And this view was so central to his philosophy that in 1966, he founded a new international community of Buddhist monks and Buddhist nuns and Buddhist lay people called the Order of Interbeing. You know, people who actually got how important this is continues to thrive today. 
Similarly, Dr. King often wrote, uh, wove variations of that theme into his speeches and writings. Uh, here's one example of that. He said, in a real sense, all of life is interrelated. In a real sense, right? Not just a theoretical sense. In a real sense, all of life is interrelated. We are caught in an inescapable, we can't get out of this, it's process and relationship all the way down, right? An inescapable network of mutuality. We're tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all of us indirectly as that web shakes and shimmers. I can never be what I ought to be until you are what you ought to be. And we can never be what... um, what we need to be until we are all what we need to be. This is deeply part of what the African philosophy of Ubuntu says, I am because we are, right? So that's the first of these two deep resonances that helped forge a mutually transformative relationship between Dr. King and Thich Nhat Hanh, the shared sense that reality is deeply interdependent. The second is compassionate action. A second deep resonant, a resonance in their worldviews is a conviction that any fully realized spiritual journey, and this is kind of a controversial claim, because basically what they're saying is people that don't get this are not fully realized on their spiritual journey, right? It's a little bit controversial. But they're saying uh, any fully realized spiritual journey includes not only deep inner contemplation, but also will manifest in compassionate action to co-create a better world. As Cornell West prophetically said, intimacy and tenderness, that's what love feels like in private. But justice, justice is what love looks like in public. In, uh, for Nat Han, uh, his 1967 book that we saw earlier, That Lotus in a Sea of Fire, that is where he coined the very influential term, engaged Buddhism. It's not just about going inside, it's about how you're living off the mat, uh, how you are out in the world, in your daily life, how you're showing up for social justice, for compassionate action. Uh, In general, on the spiritual journey, kind of along these lines, there are two common pitfalls. One is called spiritual bypassing. The other is called moral bypassing. Spiritual bypassing, and if you hang out in spiritual circles, you'll see this over time. It's when people want to use their kind of spiritual trip. They just want to be transcendent. And they just want, don't harsh my zen, man. Don't harsh my mellow, right? Don't tell me about the news. You know, I'm just floating up here. So it's like, so people try to, so spiritual bypassing in particular is trying to like, basically saying, I want to just meditate and not go to therapy. Like, I don't, I don't want to deal with all my childhood shadow material, and that shows up in really messed up ways and Buddhist sanghas and all of that. We don't have time to get into all that. But so that, that's spiritual bypassing, trying to bypass your emotional shadow material. Moral bypassing is trying to use spirituality to transcend social justice. Like, you can just be up there in the clouds and not care about uh, transforming the world. Um, and very briefly, and I could talk about this at length, it's what is called, and this is very influential for Thich Nhat Hanh, it's the difference between the first turning of Buddhism, which was the Buddha just under his little Bodhi tree becoming awakened. It's what's called the Arhat ideal of you just becoming awakened. Um, Thich Nhat Hanh is very influenced by what's called the second turning of Buddhism, in which you move from the Arhat ideal, which is you getting liberated off the wheel of samsara, to uh, to being a bodhisattva, which is choosing to um, forestall your own full awakening to make sure all, until all sentient beings are awakened. So that's the second turning of the wheel of Dharma. We'll hear a little bit more about that later.
The equivalent of what Nant Han called engaged Buddhism is how significantly Dr. King was influenced by the intersection of three similar movements. The first is prophetic black church Christianity, which has always been more oriented toward activism and social change than most historically white churches. Uh, The second was the social gospel of liberal Christianity, which teaches that Jesus' message was always about much more than changing the lives of individuals. It wasn't just about fire insurance for, like, individuals, right? Uh, It's about changing our social systems and structures and institutions to be far more loving and caring for all. Again, that sort of justice is what love looks like in public. And third, Gandhi's practice of nonviolent activism, that King actually traveled to India and was deeply influenced by that. So, so far, we've talked about two of of three deep resonances between King and Nat Han. The first is that shared experience of the the deep nature of reality is what King called interdependence, what Nat Han called interbeing. Uh, The second is a shared conviction that a mature spirituality includes contemplative action to co-create a more just world. King called this the nonviolent social gospel. Nat Han called this engaged Buddhism. A third deep resonance uh, is that all of this manifests in what King called the beloved community. And what uh, Nat Han famously said was that the next Buddha, so we already talked about the Arhat ideal and the uh, uh, Bodhisattva ideal, the second turning of the wheel of Dharma. We do not have time to get into the third turning, which is Vajrayana, often seen in Tibetan Buddhism, which is really kind of saying this world matters, not just transcending. The fourth turning of the wheel of Dharma is basically saying the next Buddha will be the Sangha. It's, it's about this way we show up um, together. The Buddhist community is what Sangha means. In other words, we should not be waiting for some individual teacher to save us. Uh, instead, our future hope is in co-creating communities that center authentic spiritual growth, multicultural, beloved community, and peaceful actions for justice, not unlike what we're trying to do here at UUCF and what you see in many other progressive communities around the world. To say more about the transformative influence that Dr. King and Nat Han had on one another, let me give just a few of the most important points. I'm going, to give, I'm going to limit myself to giving you just one from each of the final years of King's life. You may recall that it was 1965 when they first cor- corresponded. The next year in 1966 in Chicago, Nat Han and uh, King, cores- uh, so 65, they corresponded for the first time. The next year in 1966 in Chicago, they met in person for the first time. This is a photo of that. Uh, Nat Han said, we had a discussion about peace and freedom and community, and we agreed that without a community, we wouldn't get very far. We'd either burn out or we'd be a voice crying in the wilderness that no one's listening to and that's not influencing um, very many people. Moving ahead one year to 1967, Dr. King, who was a past recipient of the Nobel Peace Prize, wrote a public letter to the Nobel Institute. Uh, This is an excerpt, but again, the full letter is short, available widely online, and worth you reading in full if you're interested. He said, I do not personally know of anyone more worthy of the Nobel Peace Prize than this gentle Buddhist monk from Vietnam. I know Thich Nhat Hanh, and I am privileged to call him my friend. The history of Vietnam, it is filled with chapters of exploitation by outside powers, by corrupted men of wealth, until even now the Vietnamese are harshly ruled, ill-fed, poorly housed, and burdened by all the hardships and terrors of modern warfare. 
Thich Nhat Hanh offers a way out of this nightmare. Remember, King always talked about his dream, but he also talked about things that are nightmares. He offers a solution acceptable to rational leaders. Remember him talking earlier about those world humanists. His ideas for peace, if applied, would build a a monument to ecumenism, to world brotherhood, and to humanity. Uh, Sadly, the Nobel Peace Prize, and I really think this is the cowardice of the Nobel Peace Prize Committee, they just didn't award it to anyone in either 1966 or 1967. But that same year of 67, King and Nhat Hanh, uh, the only thing they did related to the uh, Vietnam War was give it to Henry Kissinger. I do not have time to get uh, into that. Uh, But that same year of 67, King and Nhat Hanh did meet again in person, this time in Geneva, Switzerland. Uh, Here's Nhat Hanh's memory of that final meeting. Dr. King was staying up on the 11th floor, and I was on the 4th floor, and he invited me up for breakfast. On my way, I was detained by the press, so I arrived late, and I think this is a beautiful detail. He said he had kept the breakfast warm for me and waited for me to eat. I greeted him, Dr. King, Dr. King, and he replied, Dr. Han, Dr. Han. We were able to continue our discussion on peace freedom and community and what kind of steps America would need to take to end the war. And we agreed that without a happy, harmonious community, we would not be able to realize our dream. I think that pronoun's important there, right? Our dream. Interdependence. I said to him, Martin, do you know something? In Vietnam, they call you a bodhisattva. An enlightened being trying to awaken other living beings and help them move toward more compassion and understanding. And Han said, I'm so glad that I had the chance to tell him that. Because just a few months later, he was assassinated in Memphis. I think it's such a reminder. If there's something you want to tell someone, tell them right now, today, this afternoon. Mere days after King's assassination, he had been scheduled to attend a retreat with Thich Nhat Hanh at the Abbey of Gethsemane that was going to be hosted by Thomas Merton. But that third meeting was not to be. The morning after learning the news, Thich Nhat Hanh said, I didn't sleep last night. I don't know if I can get through this. They killed Martin Luther King. They killed us. Again, note that pronoun, us. Interdependence, not an idea, a felt, lived sense of reality. I am afraid the root of violence is so deep in the heart and the manner of this society. They killed him. They killed my hope. Han said, this community is able to produce king, but not to preserve king. He made so great an impression on me. And this morning, I have the impression that I cannot bear this loss. But he concluded, I do make a deep vow to continue building what he called the beloved community. Not only for myself, but for him also. Importantly, the title of Dr. King's final book, published in the last year of his life, is formed from two profound questions that we still don't have the answer to. Where do we go from here? Chaos or community? The past few years, it feels like we might just collectively choose chaos. 
what is sometimes called the great unraveling. But all that chaos and unraveling that we are experiencing, it also has the potential to open up change, to open up space in which growth can happen, even if it's quite a bit scary sometimes here in the middle when we don't yet know how the story is going to end. In previous Sunday services, we've explored how this great unraveling has the potential to be harnessed in what the environmental activist and Buddhist Joanna Macy has called not the great unraveling, but the great turning. Uh, The anthem, which our choir will sing in a few minutes, is inspired by this vision of a great turning. To say more about what that means, a great turning, let me show you the simplified version of a chart that I created a few years ago. We could spend the next few hours fruitfully exploring this chart. I want to just very briefly explore it with you from two angles. Let's start vertically, and then we're going to go horizontally. Often these things are seen in isolation, but I want to see them us to see them comparatively, which is where things can really start to open up. So very briefly, at UUCF, we have this mission statement, right? Why do we gather? We gather to encourage spiritual growth, spirituality, to build a beloved community, and to act for peace and justice. And notice those three movements, the movement in of spiritual growth, the movement together of of community, the movement out into the world for justice. Spirituality, as we've talked about, at its essence in its most profound is a paradigm shift from thinking your ego and your eye is the separated, isolated thing to a lived experience of interdependence, uh, of beloved community, of leading to collective liberation. Collective liberation means that we all get free, right? And justice is about that move from power over to power with. Um, Dr. King said, when we talk about wanting to build the beloved community, we need to be honest about what he called the triple threats, the three things that most regularly hold us back from actually doing the thing and building beloved community. Those things are materialism, caring too much about stuff, Uh, racism that keeps us unduly apart, and militarism, uh, you know, blowing each other up. Uh, The Poor People's Campaign would add to that um, ecological devastation, right, climate justice. Keep in mind, King was killed before the first Earth Day. Also, King was killed before second wave feminism. We could also add up here gender justice, right, and a a lot of other things. Uh, Bell Hooks similarly talked about the white supremacist capitalist patriarchy, right? That's what we need to dismantle. And Audre Lorde so powerfully said, the master's tools will not dismantle the master's house, right? And she's using that word master intentionally, right? That, that intersection of, of enslave, you know, enslaving people to fuel capitalism. That thing will not, we need something different to dismantle the master's house. And so to move to the last two, you often hear me talk about we need to move away from the um, bottom line of profit alone. Profit still matters. Profit motive can still matter. But we need to add to that the triple bottom line of people and planet so that we're paying people a fair wage, we're not exploiting people, and we're not and, and doing and acting in a sustainable way for the planet. And finally, Buddhism, to bring in this Thich Nhat Hanh piece, Buddhism has this profound concept that relates to all of this of the three poisons and the three antidotes. The three poisons are greed and attachment. Holding on real, it's not that you can't have things, but it's holding on super tightly to them in a controlling way. Greed, attachment. The antidote to that is Generosity, being willing to give away what other people need. Uh, the second is uh, poison is delusion and ignorance. Um, and the antidote to that is wisdom. Not just knowledge, but wisdom. 
Uh, and the final poison is hatred and aversion. And notice the greed and attachment is clinging on, and aversion is pushing away, right? It's the opposite, instead of being able to freely, in, in a liberated way, um, act. Uh, and the antidote for that is love, which is at the, the center, for those of you who've been following our uh, reimagining our principles and purposes, that love at the, the center, potentially. Okay, very briefly, let's look at these, um, the, the cross, and you can already see some of this. So spirituality is kind of the antidote to thinking only stuff matters, right? That the, the one that dies with the mouse toys wins, right? Uh, the reason that billionaires are a policy failure, that they even exist. Uh, I don't have time to get into all that. But. Uh, so, uh, you know, capitalism, again, just more and more and more and more, never enough. Profit as the bottom line alone, greed, attachment. Uh, so then moving to belo- beloved community. Beloved community brings us together, right? All of us here together in this big tent versus white supremacy that, um, and versus, uh, and so then, then we start to get in, and uh, let me name that poison, right? That we know that racism is a delusion, right? That race ultimately isn't real. We've made it real, but that we know that on the DNA level, we're 99.9% the same. I mean, heck, on the DNA level, we're like, you know, 1.8% different from apes, right? I mean, like, so we're really all part of the same tree of life, right? So uh, we humans are just, we're the same. Uh, you know, just, we, we've taken this arbitrary melanin thing and created this horrible social construct around it, but it is ultimately a delusion, but must be deconstructed. Uh, and finally, uh, collective liberation. Uh, so, you know, not militarism, not conquering one another, but, uh, but living together in world community, not patriarchy dominance, but again, that building a community on love. So I hope you kind of, I just wanted to sort of begin to tie some of these things uh, together. Finally, if I could ask you to go deeper and explore further on this Martin Luther King Jr. weekend, uh, either, honestly, either later today or tomorrow, so you don't forget about it. If you could try to do either or both of these two things, I'd invite you to do uh, either or both of these. First, read, even if you've done it before, read, watch, or listen to the sermon that Dr. King preached precisely one year before he was assassinated, which is his sermon titled Beyond Vietnam, A Time to Break Silence. I think it's I think it's the most profound thing he ever did, the bravest thing he ever did, probably the reason he was killed. Uh, and discern what lessons there are and how we are called to respond in our current context today. Uh, the second is to read Thich Nhat Hanh's powerful poem, Call Me By My True Names, which is deeply about interdependence, also widely available online. Like King's Sermon, you can watch it, you can read it, all of that. And spend some time in mindful contemplation of what contemplative action you feel called to make. For now, I want to invite us to not just have, these aren't just ideas up in our head, but I want us to experience, experiment with experiencing right now, in real time, in the present moment, what King and Nat Han were talking about. Begin to open in your hymnals to 1031, filled with loving kindness, and notice we're going to sing through this once using that ego pronoun I, but then we're going to be able to begin to break open that ego. The second time we sing this, we're going to take all those first-person pronouns, I, and we're going to shift them to the second person, you. And just notice, who do you need to, who's the you for you? Could be an enemy, it could be a beloved, this, just who do you need to, who's the you you need to sing to? And the third time, we're going to change it to we, for all sentient beings. And just begin to experience this interdependence this interbeing, this beloved community, this Buddhism as Sangha. These are not abstract ideas. They are invitations to experience this directly in your firsthand experience. All of this stuff, we talk about meditation practice, right? Practice doesn't make perfect, 
but it makes more permanent. The more we do it, it becomes more our second nature. So open your mind, open your heart, open your spirit as we prepare to sing together. What does it feel like right now in real time as we incline our heart, our mind, our spirit to shift from I to you to we? Let's rise and body your spirit. Let's sing together. One of uh, Thich Nhat Hanh's most famous examples, he used to say to folks that you'll know you've finally gotten it, this whole interbeing and interdependence thing, if when you look at this paper, you don't just see the paper. You see that it is process and relationship all the way down. That when you see this paper, you see the tree that it came from. And you see the lumberjack that cut down that tree, and you see the cloud and the rain and the grass and the mushrooms and the, all that took to make that tree, and you see this paper, and you see that it'll eventually be recycled, and it'll be part of that cycle all over again. That's, that's interdependence. That's relationship, interbeing. I'll mention just one other piece that, you know, Thich Nhat Hanh is no longer with us, though he would say he is. He would say, if when you see the cloud, remember that, you know, I'm, I'm still there. Uh, how many of you have seen, his niece is in Virginia and, and teaches there. Have any of you been to that practice for that community? If you want that information, if you're interested, we, we've invited her to come here and speak. I hope she will someday. She's being very cautious with COVID still, uh, but uh, you can certainly go see her. For now, as we continue into the rest of uh, this day and into the week to come, may you continue your journey with love, right? As so beautifully was just sung about, that in this great turning, we will learn to lead with love. May you continue your journey with love, care for one another, care for this one earth, do justice and make peace. And as you go, whatever taste or touch you've had in this time and place of hope, of love, of peace or joy, that goes with you into the world. We are different we're more interdependent. We more inter are for having spent this time together. May you live boldly. May you live with thanksgiving.